We've got uh, Easter Sunday coming up, and uh, we're going to do a couple things that weekend. Uh, we've been partnering with uh, some community groups in the area and some local businesses. On the Saturday before Easter, uh, we're going to have a what's called the pop-up shop, so the, the exciting pop-up shop carnival or something out here in our South Lawn. Northwest is hosting, but a lot of other groups are kind of helping to put it on. And we're, we're working with them. So we're going to have about 30 or 40 different small businesses from around Oklahoma City. Uh, they'll have tables and tents set up on the South Lawn. Um, they're going to have an Easter egg hunt at noon. There'll be food trucks. Uh, so we're kind of working with them to get all that put together. Um, one of the things that we'll be doing is Northwest will have a table uh, promoting uh, Jesus and inviting the people to come uh, and meet him here. And so uh, we're going to be letting them know who Northwest is and what we're about. Uh, if you want to come and sit at that table, or if you just want to come out there and do the Easter egg hunt, um, if you're a grown-up, it's not for you, but you can bring your kids, uh, and they can enjoy it. Um, the Easter egg hunt will be just right at noon. Uh, and then come and shop and meet people and let them know who you are and what we're about. It's going to be a great opportunity. Uh, the next morning... Uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to have an all-church uh, breakfast. It'll give us a chance to get to know each other a little bit more. Um, we've, we've missed each other over the past couple years. And as we're coming more and more back together, we want more opportunities to deepen and broaden relationships. And we're going to take that as an opportunity to do that. We're going to eat together. Uh, hopefully, as we have visitors that Sunday morning, we'll be able to eat with them and get to know them uh, and show them a little bit of who we are and who Jesus is. Uh, and then we'll come in here for worship uh, together and, and worship Jesus as we do uh, every week and celebrate Him. For the next couple of weeks, I want to be talking about the crucifixion. We've been talking a lot about Jesus throughout this year and focusing on who He is and why He matters, why He's Lord uh, of our lives and what that means for those of us who claim to be His followers and His disciples. Uh, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the crucifixion. What happened in the crucifixion? Uh, and, and it's an interesting topic because even as we've been singing about it this morning, uh, I think sometimes we get a, a really good defined answer to why Jesus died on the cross. In fact, uh, I'm going to ask you to answer the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And so take a second to think about it, and then we're going to all answer together and see how much consensus we have in the room. All right? So think about your answer now I'm going to ask, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Your answer is? Yeah, we got a number of answers, but it, the cadence of it made me think that most of you said to save us from our sins. How many of you said to save us from our sins or something real like it? Yeah, that's the uh, family feud, right? Number one answer is on the board. Save us from our sins. 72 people said. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible doesn't limit that question to one answer. Jesus' death on the cross does many, many things. Today, uh, what we're going to do, you know the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? We're going to do kind of a scriptural survey of things that are happening at the, at, at the cross. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What happened as a result of his death on the cross? And we're going to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. They are not all equal. Some of them are, are significantly less significant uh, than some of the others. Some of them are core to the very uh, root of our faith. 
and others are just historically interesting. But when we get into this and we start looking at all of this, it does a number of things. One, I think it really enriches our understanding of what it means to be Jesus's followers today. If we don't understand what's going on when Jesus takes up his cross, how can we possibly be the people that take up our cross and follow him? There's something in the cross that, that Jesus believes we as his people should be continuing to live out in our lives as we copy what he was doing in his death. And the more we understand what's going on there, the better we can follow him in, in our Christian walk. And so as mentioned previously, uh, 100 people were asked, top answers on the board. Number one answer is to save us from our sins. Probably the most well-known scripture in all of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is important. This is central to our understanding of what's, what's happening when Jesus is crucified. But it is not... The, the whole enchilada. It's not the whole story. And it's important that we realize that. And the other thing that we need to be careful about is, is if we get too much into this and, and believe and hang our whole hat on this passage only, we run the risk of getting into a place where our understanding of what's happening at the cross is that God so hated the world that he had to kill his son. Does that make sense? That, that if we get this idea that God's wrath and God's anger, that he's just so mad at us that he was going to kill us as soon as he got a chance. And fortunately, Jesus got in the way and died so that God doesn't kill us. And, and it's this vision of wrath. And it's a problem if we believe that. It's a problem that if we think that God is wrathful and thank Jesus he got in the way so that it didn't, didn't get poured out on us. God in, in, in the Old Testament describes himself as tender and merciful and just, forgives people on a number of occasions without demanding their death or pouring his wrath out on them, forgives Abraham, forgives Noah, forgives David. After the incident with Bathsheba, David repents and it says, and God forgave him. It didn't say that he, he had to pour out his wrath on him and kill him there and, and there was nothing that could be done about it. God is a gracious and merciful God. So that Jesus can say in his own ministry, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we've got to make sure that we don't get this idea that God is angry and Jesus is loving. God and Jesus and the Spirit are, are one and they share a nature with one another. And what Jesus does on the cross is the fulfillment of what God has been working from the beginning. God has always been in the business of saving his people. And the cross is a very, very important part of that. But we can't let that get uh, where we get so caught up in this idea that the cross changed God's plans to destroy us. Because God's been working this plan of salvation from just the very earliest pages of the history of humanity. And that continues to echo through this. And you're going to see so much more of what's happening in the cross and how that continues to show that it's continuing what God has been doing, not getting in the way of it. And we've got to grasp that. Why was Jesus crucified? In a very practical way, Jesus was crucified because he offended and threatened powerful leaders of Israel in the temple. 
And, and I think this is one of the things we need to grasp. Which is more important, that God saved us from our sins or that Jesus threatened powerful people? The sin thing, right? But does it matter that the reason that Jesus was crucified was because he made powerful people angry? I think it does. I think it tells us that, that if we're going to be the followers of Jesus, we should speak truth even when the world doesn't like it. That we need to be willing to stand up and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and I don't care if me saying that has consequences for my life. If we're always worried about being liked as Christians, we might not always be willing to tell the truth. Jesus, on the other hand, on reaching Jerusalem, enters the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a den? My house will be called, I lost my spot there, uh, a, prayer, a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What happened after Jesus did that? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. One of the very practical reasons that Jesus was killed was because he confronted powerful people that were corrupt. We need to be willing to do that today. And this isn't just in big, big ways. I, had, uh, I was at a ministry roundtable one time, and the guy's topic was what to do um, when people get mad at you at church. Um, you guys don't know what that's like because your ministers don't make mistakes. But at some churches, they get mad at their ministers. Um, <laughs> Lee just patted Bill like that joke was aimed at him. That's my favorite. <laughs> Uh, and he says, listen, here's the thing. Uh, ministry can be tough. Ministry can be stressful. Who's the only perfect person that ever lived? And we all, you know, it's a bunch of ministers. So we look around the table and we all kind of go, Jesus? Like, right. And what'd they do to him? Oh, well, they crucified him. And he goes, well, if he was perfect and that's what they did to him, what hope is there for you? <laughs> well, we need that. We need to remember that Jesus lived as a human in the midst of humans that fought with him and were in dis, dis, dissented with some of the things he did and that he was fighting with them. He lived in a very real world. And then when it came time for him to be uh, charged and they were actually having these trumped up trials and the gospel text tells over and over again that they kept trying to get lies and fake charges to stick against him so that they could crucify him because he said, uh, spoke truth to power. Mark 14, here's what, what happens. He's accused of committing blasphemy. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of, the, of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. In the next trial, the trumped-up trial where they take him before uh, Pilate. In John 19, here's what he's accused of. Uh, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. 
Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The two things that Jesus is charged with in his trumped-up trials are claiming to be the Son of God and claiming to be the true king. And he's found guilty of both charges. Isn't it remarkable that the thing that he is crucified for is, in fact, the truth? It's the truth. The trumped-up charges couldn't stick. What are the charges that stick? This guy keeps claiming he's the Son of God. That's blasphemy unless it's true. And if it's true, then it's the most important thing that's ever been said. And, and he goes to Caesar, and, and what's incredible and remarkable about this story is that these rulers of the Jewish people, these rulers of the, uh, the people there that are working at the temple should be saying, Yahweh, God, is our king, and Caesar is not. That's not what they say. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And this man claims to be king. The word Messiah means anointed one. The word Messiah means king uh, in their language. The claim to be Messiah is a claim to be king. And while Jesus often shied away from worldly power and earthly power, they accuse him of being a king who desires that. And he's found guilty in a fake court for what ends up being, again, the truth. Jesus is king and Caesar is not. Jesus still sits on a throne, and Caesar's in the grave. And every person since then who has claimed to have earthly power is in subjection and is a servant to Jesus Christ, whether they admit it or not. And we know at the end of the story that every knee shall bow to the one who truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. Whether they admit it now or will admit it then. Why did Jesus die? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Why did Jesus die? Because he was the King of Kings. And that you can't be that and claim that in the face of worldly powers that don't want you to be that, but you have to say it if it's true. And that's the problem Jesus ran into, is that his true identity was offensive to people that desired worldly power. The cross has always been offensive to those who desire worldly power. The other charge that Jesus that was brought against Jesus in these trials is in Mark 14, where the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet not even their testimony would agree. Theirs was, wouldn't line up. Uh, you know what's interesting about that thing they accused him of saying? He said it. 
Did Jesus make that claim that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it later with a temple not built by human hands? He did. Did he actually mean he was going to tear down any stones? No. No. Did he mean that he was going to, through his spirit, that when he left, the spirit would come and dwell in the the hearts and minds and bodies of his people for eternity as a result of being united with God? As a result of having uh, all of uh, of the problems of the old covenant removed, and we've got this new covenant where now, if you're in Jesus Christ, God can dwell in you through the power of the spirit? He absolutely means that. They misunderstood, and it's no surprise that with their misunderstanding, they couldn't get the testimony to work out. But the Bible does tell us that Jesus did plan for the cross to tear down walls. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing about why Jesus is crucified. And it's not about getting to heaven. It's not about, hey, Jesus died on the cross so that you can just go to church every Sunday, and when you die, you can be there uh, up in heaven for all time. That's not why. Listen to why Paul thinks the cross happened. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, and if you're not familiar with the New Testament people group, the Jews were God's people all through the Old Testament. The Gentiles were not. We're mostly in this room, as far as I know, Gentiles. We were not part of the people of God. So remember that you who used to be Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, his purpose. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To save us from our sins. Well, wait a minute. His purpose was to set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. That law gets set aside for what purpose? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To get rid of division and prejudice and racism. To get rid of the divisiveness between any two groups of people. Jesus died to tear down the walls between you so that you could become one person through the cross in Jesus. That we're united with the Father by one Spirit. The cross isn't just about getting you saved for someday. The cross is about getting you changed to become united with people today. If you're in Jesus Christ, because of the power of the cross, it changes your relationship with other people. There are people who used to be them over there that now have come near by the power of the cross. 
And this is why we need to be really looking at these, these conversations. As he talks about the law and the commands being knocked away, that old covenant, which was about God's people being Israel and other people being not God's people, that covenant's gone. And there's this new covenant that's not defined by ethnicity, and it's not defined by the rules of, of the old ways. It's defined by being in Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, you're one of the people that starts to see all the other people in Jesus as your new us. Yeah. It's the people that you're responsible to and they're responsible to you. And you have a, a need to take care of one another, a need to be honest with one another, a need to love each other, to be brothers and sisters. Why? Because it's the right thing to do? No, because that's why Jesus was willing to die on the cross change how we interact with one another. But then there's, again, this reality that all of this happens in real life. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because one of his closest friends betrayed him. Because one of the twelve, one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Jesus was so loved and popular with the crowds that they couldn't arrest him when he was at the temple. And they didn't know where he went at night. And they didn't have uh, GPS tracking devices to monitor him or street cameras to know if he was running red lights. They needed one of his people to be willing to betray him. And so it was Judas who was greedy. Judas, who didn't uh, care about the kingdom anymore. Judas, who was mad about the perfume that was expensive, that was used uh, to anoint Jesus' feet. Judas said, I am willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And it's a result of one of the people that he trusted and cared about turning his back on Jesus that led Jesus to the cross. And I mention that to just remind you that it's not all about what's happening in the spiritual realm that resulted in Jesus suffering on the cross. It happened in the real world with real relationships. And so when you're at work and someone betrays you, betrays your confidence, turns on you for their own advantage, and you think, Jesus would never know what this felt like. Really? He wouldn't know what betrayal felt like? in one of the most intense moments of his life where he's asking his three closest friends to stay awake and pray with him, they fell asleep while another of his friends went and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And so he got crucified on a cross because he experienced what we experience in our life. And he doesn't just do it because of the politics, and he doesn't just do it uh, for all of the other things. He does it in a very real way in obedience to God. This goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, where there's this idea, if God is so wrathful towards us that, thank goodness, Jesus got in the way so he didn't destroy us, we have to remember that this was God's plan first. Philippians 2 tells us that in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What is the mindset of Christ Jesus? He was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Obedient. He was obedient. It was God's plan. It was God's sacrifice. It was God's desire that the cross was the means by which we would all come into this new covenant as this new people that would be living differently in the world. And so Jesus becomes obedient even to death on the cross. It's why in Mark it says uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and that he was arrested, it says that going a little farther he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was God's will that Jesus, through this sacrifice, through this willingness to go to the cross and be obedient to the cross, that we might become this transformed new covenant community of people. Jesus in that moment knew that it wasn't going to be easy. He knew that it was going to be horrific. He knew that it would be the most difficult thing he'd ever done. And he says, God, if there's any other way, let's do it the other way. And God desires that Jesus do this for our sake and for Jesus' sake. Jesus becomes the firstborn of the resurrected. Jesus becomes what we are all anticipating and looking forward to. And it happens because of his willingness to be obedient to God. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? One of the answers that we have to hang on to is he died on the cross to destroy death. He died on the cross to destroy death. In Colossians 2, it says it this way, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities, the powers of death, the power of, uh, of the different things that, that we used to be dead in our sins and the powers and authorities are there and they're in place and Jesus destroys them by nailing it all to the cross. And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church in Thessaloniki, he says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. If you're alive when Jesus returns, you don't get to cut in line. Those who are dead in Christ will rise up with you, and in that moment... Uh, the Lord himself will come down with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If we believe in the power of the cross it changes what we're afraid of. And it changes what gives us hope. And it changes how we encourage each other. 
If you're someone that doesn't believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection that, that we're promised here in Thessalonians, if you don't believe in that, and you get a diagnosis of cancer, it's really bad news. But if you believe in this, if you have this hope of the cross that changes how you grieve, because you know that when someone you love who is in Christ dies, you get to see them again. It's not goodbye. It's not forever. When something happens in your life that is life-threatening, does it still hurt? Do we still grieve? Do we still go through all Yes, but do we have hope in a different way? We should. The cross isn't just about what happens after we die. It changes how we deal with struggles and difficulties in the present. How we deal with the challenges of this world. Jesus is also crucified. For me, this is, I don't know if you guys are Braveheart fans. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, um, there's a passage in the Gospels that is essentially the scene from Braveheart where they go to betray him and turn him over so that they can increase their lands and wealth and power. It's in John chapter 11 where many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What did Jesus do in John 11? He just raised Lazarus from the dead. Which is, by the way, not something you see every day. Jesus had just gone to the tomb, wept with the sisters who said, if you had been here, you could have done something. They didn't think that, him with, that Jesus with all of his power could still do anything. He says, listen, Lazarus will live again. And they went, yeah, 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 at the resurrection, whatever. But that doesn't help me feel better now. And Jesus goes, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. Lazarus, get, Lazarus, get up. And the stone was rolled away, and Lazarus walks out. And, and the result of that, can you imagine if, if you were there that day and you saw Jesus do that, wouldn't you just drop on your knees and say, you are the one we've been waiting for? Exactly. You've got power over death? You're, the, you're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. Exactly. It's Jesus. And you go tell everyone you knew. We found him. But listen to what happens. What are we accomplishing, these leaders of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees ask? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. One of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you. That one man die for the people, then the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also the scattered children of God, to bring them all together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The prophecy that Caiaphas got was true. Jesus would die for the Jewish nations and all the scattered people of the world would be able to come in and be saved as a result of the sacrifice of this one man. Caiaphas understood that to mean I must preserve the little country I have that's persecuted by Rome and the power I have and the influence I have. And the way I will preserve what I have is by killing this man because he's not worth letting live for me to lose what I have. He misunderstood the true words God gave him. True words that God gave him. 
or that Jesus' death would become a sacrifice for all the people that brings them together, that has this incredible unifying power. But the Sanhedrin saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and said, we've got to stop him or everyone's going to believe him and we're going to lose everything. Rome will take our stuff away. And so they begin looking for a way to kill him. We read in John 14 that Jesus says, It's good for me to go. It's good for me to be crucified and to go away because my Father's house has many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then when I, I will eventually come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Jesus is preparing a place for us to dwell with Him. And He couldn't do that if it's not for the cross. He says that He's doing it as an example to teach us how to live. And Jesus said to His disciples, Whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for Me will find it. Here's what you got to hear. And you've heard this in these passages over and over and over again. If you're trying to pursue your power and influence and wealth and honor, you're not doing it right. If you're trying to live in a way that increases the power, influence, and honor of God and His people and others, you're taking up your cross and following the one who died on His for your sake so that you could live that way. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you wouldn't have to. He died on the cross to teach you how to. And it's a way of life that He invites us into that puts God and others ahead of ourselves. And it invites us to live that way. And it's why Paul can say, listen, if you've received any benefit or blessing from being in Jesus Christ, then get, get the mindset of Jesus, that example, and live that way, being obedient even to the cross. Jesus also did it, if you, if you remember the Passion play from years back, or if you've ever seen it, there's this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where a snake is slithering by. And Jesus, in that moment, right before his arrest and crucifixion, takes his heel and smashes the serpent's head. And if you don't know your Old Testament, you don't know what's going on there. But if you know back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit because the serpent tempted them. And there's this whole story about the fall. And in that moment, God's already working something out to fix what we broke. God's already working something out. What's He doing? He said to the serpent, which is Satan, the tempter, He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus on the cross fulfills this prophecy. He destroys and defeats all that is evil and is opposed to God and his kingdom. And we're still living in the time that is already but not yet, the time between the cross and the return, where Satan is already defeated. He's already whooped. He cannot win. There's no comeback opportunity there. The clock is, is running, but he can't win. And we're living in that space as the people who've already defeated Satan. We've just got to live like it. We've got to live without fear, live with confidence, live with courage. 
Because we're the people that follow the one who crushed the head of the serpent. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? There's a lot of answers. John Piper wrote a book, 50 Reasons Jesus Had to Die on the Cross. And we're staying here today till I cover all 50. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Got a couple more. A couple more and I'll wrap it up. Jesus had to die on the cross so the Spirit could come. And this is so important. We talked about this a lot uh, last year uh, when we talked about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus tells the apostles, we, I, we have this idea today that if Jesus would just come back here to this world, if I asked you, if Jesus were here today, would the world be a better place? We would say, yes! Except that Jesus told the apostles, it's good for me to go so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Because when the Advocate comes, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in my people, my people will do even greater things than I've done. And so when we say we would be better off if Jesus were here today, it's a good sentiment, but it fails to recognize that we as people with the Spirit should be doing better things than if Jesus were even here. Which means we've got work to do. We're not just waiting for Jesus to come back and take us home because of the cross. Because of the cross, we've got work to do by the power of the Spirit dwelling inside of us. So we need to get busy. The cross isn't just this thing that happens so that we can have a personal relationship with God. The cross is what happened to start a revolution that we start bringing God's goodness into a world that seems to be dark and evil where we change the way we get along with each other as a result of the cross tearing down the dividing wall. How big of a deal is this? It's such a big deal that in Romans 8, Paul says the entire creation is groaning, waiting for us to show up. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What should happen when a bunch of Christians show up? The creation thinks when we show up that the whole world's going to be set free and glorified. Wouldn't that be great if when Christians showed up somewhere, everyone in the world went, man, there is freedom and glory here because Jesus' people just got here. The world doesn't always look at us that way, does it? Because so often we have made the cross into something that only has to do with our personal relationship with Jesus. And it fails to call us into this radical way of being the light bringers and life bringers and restorative people who are bringing God's people and God's kingdom to a world that needs God, whether it knows it or not, by the power of the cross and the work of the Spirit in us and through us. So the cross is not a story of simple personal salvation. It's the single most event in all of human history upon which the entire world pivots. It is nothing less than that. It's the beginning of the transformation of the entire creation into its final form. It's already started and it's on its way and we should be working with God to get it there. 
It's the moment the kingdom of God was truly born. It's the event which unites all of humanity under God the Father by the power of the Spirit. It's when the Spirit broke into human hearts and began shaping us from the inside to make us like God. A lot happened that day, that good, good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross to start a revolution that we're still living into today when we're willing to realize that we've got work to do to get this world to look like God died for it to become. If you're here today and you need to respond to the gospel, Jesus died on the cross for you so that you could have this incredible life and incredible work and incredible purpose. And if you've never responded to that, do it today while we stand and sing.